We'll proceed in our study of the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we will look today at verses 22 to 29. Um, now, to preface our study, most of this chapter, Jesus is dealing with half-hearted disciples. Half-hearted people. Half-hearted people are superficial people. These are external, shallow, phony believers. And these, like most today, are apparent disciples of Christ, professors of Christ, who are no disciples at all. The outward, the external, those who simply profess Christ and there's nothing in their lives that bears witness of someone that's been radically transformed into being a new creature in Christ are nothing but apparent disciples. They're false disciples. And as we'll see today and in the weeks before us as we work our way through chapter 6, these are the very people that Jesus is dealing with here. False disciples. The superficial, the outward. Last time, <clears throat> after the feeding of the 5,000, <clears> excuse me, last week we looked at a test of faith for the faithful. The true disciples of Christ. The disciples who got into the boat, as Jesus said, get into the boat and go to the other side. They got into the boat and they were faced with a storm. If any true believer that is in Christ is going to be faced with storms. For storms are the only way in which we are able to grow. <clears throat> Trials. That's how we grow. Today, we'll focus in on verses 22 to 29 where we see the title of the message is The Exposed Desires of the Faithless. The false disciples of Christ. Last time it was the true disciples of Christ and they're testing. Today, the exposed desires of the faithless. The false so if you would, look at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 22, and I'll read through 29. Now it says, on the following day, this is the day after the account of Jesus walking on the water and the storm that the, face, the disciples faced. It says, after that day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, <clears throat> but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because... God the Father has set His seal on Him. And then they said to Him, Well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, 
This is the work of God. That you believe in Him whom He sent. <clears throat> now there's three observations to relate in our text here this morning. They're outlined for you in the bulletin. Number one is that we see the self-interest of men who seek after Jesus, of which is revealed for us in verses 22 to 24. Observation number two is the self-interest of men who seek after Jesus, of which is rebuked by Jesus in verses 25 to 27. And then thirdly, the ultimate interest and work of man is to believe in Christ, verses 28 to 29. This is to believe in Christ, not merely about Christ. Now, to set in motion chapter 6, John began with this account of the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of 5,000 men. So with women and children there, he would have fed upward of anywhere from 10, 15, perhaps 20,000 people. And in this chapter, early on, John records the Lord's ministries, both of grace and truth. Remember back in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, grace and truth certainly existed in and through the ministry of Moses, but they were fully revealed in the coming of Christ. Fully made manifest through the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. So in grace we see where the Lord fed this hungry mob. He multiplied bread and fish for this mass group of people that were following Him around. But what we have here in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, verse 71, we, see, we, we, we hear of another discourse that is given to us by Christ to this mob, this time referring to Himself as the bread of life. The last discourse we studied was John chapter 5 after the, the healing of the man of the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus went on to declare of himself, bearing witness of himself through many other witnesses, <clears throat> that he indeed was the Son of God. This group sought after the grace food, but they did not want the truth in the end, as we will see in the coming weeks. The majority of them abandoned Jesus after this discourse. John 666 it says, and they walked with him no more. They depart. This was not a user-friendly message given by the Lord Jesus Christ here. In short, he will lose this crowd with one sermon. One sermon. They'll go out from following him. They'll leave. They'll depart. As I said in the first discord of uh, John 5, speaking to a Jewish audience, Jesus gives certain witness accounts as to his deity. He brings forth the testimony of John the Baptist, which pointed to Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He brings forth the witness of his works, his supernatural works, that would declare who he was or point to who he was. The witness of the Father... been neglected. They would neglect the witness of the Father in regard to the Son here. And then finally, the witness of Scripture. 
that they will not hear. So to wrap up this indictment of this group, their unbelief, in John chapter 5, uh, back in verse 45, it says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and that is Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? So the accusation and judgment against them will be Moses. Because of the word of Moses, you know what it was? It was Christ. Everything that you read in the Old Testament points forward to Christ. The fulfillment of all things. He goes on, he multiplies the bread and fish, metaphysically, supernaturally. And we see the grace of God and the power of God by the twelve baskets of leftovers. God provides in abundance. So the feeding of the 5,000, getting back to the disciples of the Lord, was a lesson to them. It was a lesson to them of faith, of the provision that God alone provides through the Son. And after that lesson, He gives them the exam, and the exam is for them to get into the boat and to go off without Him, and then they're faced with that storm. With that storm. And then Jesus would come walking to them on the water. The storm takes place in the dark, in the absence of Jesus. And this is all in order to teach them to trust Him more. This is a manner of refinement, testing. You're never going to grow in Christ without being refined. You and I will never grow without being tested. You'll never know what you're made of unless God brings forth testings, trials, tribulations into your life. You'll never know. All that does is builds an assurance to us as whose we are. You see. Testing is to prove nothing to Him. He knows all things. He's sovereign. He puts us through the test in order to reveal that it's Him working in us and through us. Those who walk away, as this mob will do in John 6.66, reveal God is not in them. They don't know Him. They turn from the only one that can save them. So, true disciples will be tested. On the other hand, the superficial mob, the externally driven followers of Christ, did seek Him out with all diligence. They're here seeking Christ, but for reasons other than His saving grace. Other than their desperate need of redemption. They've been blinded to it. And that leads us to observation number one, where we see the self-interest of men who seek after Jesus, of which is revealed for us in verses 22 to 24. Verse 22, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the crowd saw no way by which Jesus could have possibly crossed this lake, Sea of Galilee. I mean, they recalled the fact that as they were there to witness Jesus telling them to get into the boat and cross, the previous night, Jesus did not set sail with them. 
So they're tripping here. How on earth did he get here? How did he get over here? Now, the mob that was there the night before, after the feeding of this mass group of people, not only did Jesus command his disciples to get in a boat to go, he also commanded the masses to go away. He bid them farewell. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. But they kept hanging around when he told them to go away. Now recognize, one of the characteristics of a false disciple is disobedience. One of the characteristics of a false disciple is disobedience. Some synonyms for disobedience are insubordination, noncompliance, defiance. Some synonymous terms for obedience, on the other hand, are as follows. Compliance, respect, duty, and here's one, submission. Submission. If a person's not submitted to Christ, he is submitted to something or someone else. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other, or you will be dedicated to one and despise the other. It's impossible. It leads to a split personality. So whatever an individual submits himself to, inevitably becomes his master. Question, are you submitted to Jesus Christ? Is he first on your mind? Is he the focus of your life? Now, some of church attendees will complain and moan about an hour-long sermon. I'm not prefacing this message to tell you that this is going to be an hour-long sermon. It is, but that's beside the point. They'll complain and moan about long teaching. Oh, it's, it's too deep. It's so theological. But this same group, you know, unless they're spoon-fed some little sermonette for Christianettes, they're not satisfied. But these same people will go sit through a three-hour movie. No problems at all. They'll go to a real estate seminar, of which I was part of last year, by the way. I don't know why I was at this thing, but it was down at the convention center. I was there with my wife. And this master of real estate, who is a multimillionaire, time and time again, is sitting there on a stool for three hours and 15 minutes telling people how to get rich through real estate. And this is what I observed while I was there for three hours and 15 minutes. He never said, okay, get up and everyone stretch now. Let's take a stretch break. Or perhaps you have to go potty. Go ahead and go. We'll be back. We'll, we'll continue on in 10 minutes. He never did that. And you know what else I noticed? Nobody left. Anyone who left to go to the restroom, they came back in. Why? What that dude had, they wanted. They were hungry. They wanted it. And then at the end, for $3,000, you can go back and buy my little package of goods and learn how to do this yourself from home. And I have no idea how many people went back there, but it was like a herd of cattle. Mm. Jockeying for position to get back there and spend three grand on this package. But people who profess the name of Jesus Christ get irritated 
discomforted, distracted. Because some guy stands up and expounds the truth of Jesus Christ, his word, the only thing that's never going to change, by the way. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? You are somebody's slave. Everybody. You are the slave of somebody or something. May we be slaves of Christ. Amen. To whom or what you are submitted to, you present yourself a slave. Are we, are we submitted to Jesus Christ or are we submitted to what He can provide for us? We open with that question. Because it will be revealed today what this mob was interested in Jesus about. It wasn't the person of Christ. It was the power of Christ and what He provides through the power, you see. The world of difference here. You know, a person can be a worshiper of self. And really, if you don't worship God, you're basically worshiping self. Because whatever your carnal desires want, they will go after that thing or that person. Whatever it is, and you're basically fulfilling lustful desires, which is really worship of self. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me. He must become the priority. And he can only become the priority by those who have been supernaturally transformed, as we'll see in a little bit. But a person can be a worshiper of self or of materialism and still eagerly inquire about Jesus Christ. It happens all the time. It always has happened. It was happening then and it happens today. Now this crowd was obviously seeking Jesus in one sense, although their minds were on themselves. Verse 22 tells us that they noticed one boat and that Jesus never got into it. So what they're trying to figure out is where he went. How did he get to the other side? You know, certainly by this point, even though it was just a day later, word was already spreading about this great miracle of Jesus feeding thousands. Much of the crowd had come by foot. They knew the disciples departed, and they departed without Jesus. They're scratching their heads. They're trying to figure out. They got their hand on their chin. They're going, whoa, this is amazing. Meanwhile, at the same time, you have other boats coming from Tiberias, the northwest shore of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, landing near the people where the feeding took place. And I'm sure that some of these people went out likely going back to friends, likely going back to to family, saying, this was amazing. Yesterday was amazing. You should have been there. Come on with me. I'm sure he'll do it again. Come on. It's amazing. This Jesus of Nazareth. Miracle worker. Now, Capernaum, this is where they all rush to, This was Jesus' home base of ministry at this time. This is his home base of ministry. This is now where his family was. This is where his disciples would reside. It was home camp. In the following discourse, verses 22 to 71 are set in Capernaum in a synagogue. And how do we know that? Verse 59 declares it for us. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So have that in your mind here for the next... 
two weeks or so. So verse 24, these masses came to, per, to Capernaum doing what? Seeking Jesus. Seeking Him. They sought Him, alright, but they sought Him for all the wrong reasons. Many people seek Christ today, but for all the wrong reasons. When you come seeking Jesus, is your mind filled with imagined desires of what you want from Him? Or is your mind filled with the person, the power, the work, the glory, the goodness, and the grace of Jesus Christ, which He's already provided? His majesty. You know, there's a tendency today through preaching to focus on human need rather than on God Himself. That's why there's so many little cute little sermonettes with, you know, three steps to a better this, five steps to more success in this area of your life, and the this in relationship. You know what? Put God first and everything will fall into place, man. Let me tell you what. It's called the trickle-down effect. Human need. That's the focus today in most pulpits. James Montgomery Boyce wrote about this years ago. He's in, he's, in the he he's in heaven with the Lord now. James Montgomery Boyce writes, and I quote, It is tragically possible to so focus on our needs that we are actually focusing on ourselves rather than on Jesus. And so never get to the solutions of our problems that Jesus wants to bring. This occurs to different degrees in different people, of course. But I know of one case, a woman, who has had a great deal of psychiatric counseling, in which there's no longer even a real desire to get better. She will talk endlessly about her problems, but she will almost come apart psychologically at any suggestion that God might have an answer that would bring her problems to an end. Another example, a small group Bible study in which the people involved think mainly of their problems. It is a kind of therapy group in which each one listens to the problem of the others so that the others will listen to him. There's almost a competition in problems. Who has the worst problems? Who should get the most sympathy? It is good in a relative way to get things out into the open. Nevertheless, the solutions are in Christ and not in our ability to articulate problems. I'm convinced that one of the major steps of achieving good spiritual mental health is getting your mind off yourself entirely and on the Lord instead. End quote. You know, if you're miserable in life, it's very likely that you are regularly, regularly focused on yourself. No one will bring you more misery in life than the man or woman in the mirror. Amen? When you're consumed with you, you're going to be miserable. I'm most miserable when I'm consumed with me. <laughs> I tell you what. So and perhaps you're here seeking Jesus in order to fix the consequences of self-indulgence. Notice, the consequences of self-indulgence. Some of the consequences of self-indulgence, as I was thinking about this, are as follows. Ruined relationships. Loneliness. Bitterness, resentment, rage, theft, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Those are consequences of self-indulgence. And many people come to Jesus seeking a release from the consequences of their self-indulgence. When in reality, they need to come to Jesus with the problem of sin. 
of self-indulgence. Anything with self in front of it is sin, except self-denial. This group wanted to use Jesus for what he could do for them. Another trait of a false disciple. Seeking Jesus for what he can do for them. You know, many people who claim to just love Jesus, I love Jesus, their lifestyle proves otherwise. They simply love themselves and they, they seek Jesus in order to fill, fulfill their every fleshful desire. And of course, the get out of hell free card. Everybody wants that, amen? Oh yeah, Jesus, I'll say that. Give me some formulated prayer so I can get that get out of hell free card and I'm good to go. Come on, somebody. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The masses sought him out diligently and desired him simply for temporary benefit. That's it. It's like many in our day. They go to church, they put on this outward facade, they pretend to be religious, they want to make a show of godliness because it's been fashionable in the past, it's helped them in their business. And it's a convenient method of getting free bread without toil. Getting what you need, getting what you want without toil. You know, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go attach myself to that, to that church down there. Because I know that I can manipulate these people out of guilt. And I know that they'll give because they're Christians and they know they need to give. So I'll just go put on the facade so I can get what I need without toil. People make a living going from church to church to church, giving their sob story so that this church will, will just take care of them out of guilt. Oh, here's some money. Let's just cut a check for you in the name of Jesus. Here you go. And we're doing ministry. That's no ministry. You better investigate who that person is and see what they're really about. So the superficial seeking of seeking out of Jesus here has, has been revealed. And that leads us to observation number two. The self-interest of men who seek after Jesus is rebuked by Jesus. Verse 25 to 27. Look at verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice verse 25. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Which translated is to say this, Imagine meeting you here, Jesus. Wow! Isn't it something that, you know, we came over here and wow, here you are. This is amazing. Rabbi, how did you get over here? We know yesterday you were over there. We saw your disciples get into the boat. We came in a boat, or the others of us walked, and we never saw you get into the boat, so how did you get over here? Notice, by the way, Jesus doesn't answer them. He never does. He never answers superficial worshipers. You know, he could have brazenly answered, I walked on the water. 
But Jesus, mark this, Jesus never commits his power to fake disciples. Notice they call him rabbi. That's to acknowledge him as a teacher, a great teacher. Although they refer to him as rabbi, they will soon dispute his teaching. How many people profess to know Christ, profess to love Christ, and they dispute his teaching? There's no desire to abide in the teaching, to abide in Christ. He's the vine, we're the branch. There's no, there's no abiding there. The, the branch is separated from the vine, and eventually you'll see it wither and it will die because there's no life coming through the vine into the branch because it's not connected. Earlier in verse 15, they cried out to make him king. You remember that? But they had no idea as to the nature of his reign. He's king, he's creator, he's the first, and he's the last. King of kings and lord of lords. All they wanted was a governmental release from the oppression of Rome. That's the kind of king they wanted. One that would give them food, a great health plan, and so on. False disciples of Christ always love his miracles. False disciples of Christ always want to be partakers of his power. But Jesus never commits himself, his power, to these counterfeit cliques. Remember Simon the sorcerer? Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. Simon now, Simon the sorcerer, was a, he made a profession of faith with his mouth. And then look what happened. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. Now what was he seeing here? He was seeing the power of God released through God's people. He offered them money. And he said, give me this power also. That anyone on whom I lay, that I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness. And pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. False disciples who merely want his miracles get neither his power or his presence. No power, no presence of Christ. So the words and actions of Simon here in, in Acts 8 were proving ground of a false belief in Christ. Any profession of faith in Jesus Christ without true repentance is invalid. It's an empty claim. Because God provides the repentance. He, he provides the ability of those that He converts to repent, to turn away from sin and turn towards Christ. That's a gift also. And if He gifts salvation, He also gifts repentance. There's a desire to repent on, on, on the individual who, who has come to an understanding of his salvation. You know, sometimes people will profess Christ and they get frustrated because their relationship or the relationship they think they have with Him isn't working out as planned, right? They had these certain aspirations and expectations of how God was going to work in and through their life. So they boldly, arrogantly say, Okay, God, if you're real, then you show me yourself. You prove it to me. You show me something. So Him in His divine sovereign grace 
will perhaps set up a divine appointment with the individual. He'll bring one of his own into the path of this individual, and his individual will trip out and go, wow, wow. And then later on, eventually, they'll just shrug it off as, ah, it was just coincidence. Just coincidence. And they, you just see them get harder and harder. I used to go into prisons every week, ministry for years. And this one individual, he would see the love of Christ through me to these inmates and all the ministry and all that. And, and, he, and I said, what's up with you? Why are you so hard? You act like such a tough guy down here. This is once I got to know him. They want to pull out a shaft on me or something. And he goes, I asked God a long time ago to show himself to me and he's never shown me anything. I said, really? I said, so a guy coming down here on his own time to minister the true gospel of Jesus Christ and loving on these dudes, that doesn't tell you anything? You know what he did? He started crying. <laughs> but there's never any... In, in, there's, at least to this day, I have no evidence if he really came to faith or not. It was right before his face. On the other hand, true disciples... They seek the presence of Christ, the person of Christ, and they also get his power. They come into a divine relationship where God works in them and then through them, and they're able to partake of his goodness and power and grace. So another characteristic of a false disciple, they desire his miracles but not him. Not him. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now notice, very important, Jesus does not respond with some user-friendly methodology here. He pointed out their failure to realize the significance of the signs that he was performing. And a sign always points to something what? Greater than itself. His miraculous signs pointed to his deity, his power, his person as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah. So, Jesus ignores their superficial wondering and he proceeds to get to the heart of the matter. Now, you notice what he doesn't do here. He didn't turn to his disciples. Now, you see the word seek, seeking, seeker and so on, he did not turn to his disciples here and say, you know, it's important that we meet these seekers where they're at, guys. Never. Never. There's a lot of pastors today who, who claim with their tree hugger voice, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, it's important, you know, that we reach people where they're at. You know what that assumes? You know what that assumes? That assumes that wherever it is that they're at, that the Word of God can't reach them. You understand that? If you think that meeting them where they're at is watering down the gospel and pandering to them and treating them as children is meeting them where they're at, then you have no confidence in the power of their word of God which is the only thing that's going to bring them to saving faith. Pulpits are a mess today. Full of pulpiteers, man, with their little jokes, their little anecdotes, and, and they deny the authority of the word of God because they don't preach it, man. Boy, that irritates me if you can't tell. The living Word of God is the only sole authority that any preacher has. It's the, it's the sole authority that any believer has. It's the, it's the living Word of God. That's it. Don't pander to people. Proclaim the truth. 
truth. Jesus does not go there. Be seeker-sensitive. The greatest seeker-sensitive movement that has ever been known out of Chicago, Illinois, as I said last week, has publicly made a statement saying everything that we've dumped millions of dollars into over the last two decades or three decades, it just hasn't worked. Now, since then, they've spent a lot of money on these videos of, of, of proclaiming how it hasn't worked. You know, you never want to judge anyone's motives, but unless these brothers go back to preaching the true authoritative Word of God, I just see it as another marketing ploy. That's all. Telling people how it hasn't worked. So what are you going to do now? Why don't you just close your mouth and preach the Word of God from the pulpit? And you will see God change. You will see your numbers go down. Because Jesus didn't preach a seeker-sensitive sermon, they went out and they followed Him no more. But those He preached to who were converted, they followed Him to the cross. They might have departed at the last minute, but they were there in the end. Why? Because they were true believers. He gets to the true motives here. Their pretentiousness, their spiritual posing is exposed and it's rebuked. No pandering. Pitter-pattering around, tiptoeing through the tulips. Want, no, I don't want to offend anybody. Jesus gets right to it, boy. Right to the heart of the matter. This is insightful. This is, I mean, this is heart-piercing. You think about this. Everywhere in the Bible, hypocritical worship is condemned with severity. We'll take a short little journey here through Scripture. Just short, okay? Now, think about the Israelites for a moment. God leads them through the wilderness. He provides for them manna from heaven. He provides water out of a rock, okay? Psalm 78, 37. Their heart was not steadfast with Him. Nor were they faithful in His covenant. Psalm 106, verse 12. They believed His words. They sang His praise. They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and they tested God in the desert. Their worship was superficial. And the Lord sees right through false worship. And you know what He does with it? You know what He does with false worship? He ignores it. Well, God hears all of us when we pray. No, He doesn't. Isaiah 1.15, Brother Aaron read from it this morning. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Pray all you want. False disciples, pray all you want. The only prayer he's going to hear is a prayer of repentance. That will get you started. New Testament, Matthew 23, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you all, you're all like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside, you're all full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul, his epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 13, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Snake poison in their mouth. You know, Paul, he goes on in Colossians. And what he does now is he regards those people that outwardly sacrifice doing certain things. You know, they, they don't smoke, they don't drink, they don't dance. That type of thing. You know, they wear dresses down to their uh, heels and, and they don't play cards because they're of the devil. All this outward stuff. 
for appearance. And then they begin to want to load that on other people to appear like they're super spiritual giants. Colossians 2 verse 23, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Why? Because they're merely outward. Outward. It's for show. It's not from the heart. And then it's eventually revealed as in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, false disciples and false teachers are eventually revealed as who they really are. And what, what are they? They're boasters, they're proud, they're blasphemers, they're disobedient to their parents, they're unthankful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're unforgiving, they're slanderers, they have no self-control. They're brutal, they're despisers of good, they're traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All the while, you know what they have? Look at it. A form of godliness. They have an outward form of godliness. Denying its power. From such people, the instruction, turn away. You know, anyone who's going to really speak for Jesus Christ must not be afraid to rebuke the pretender. Do not be afraid to rebuke pretenders. See, the problems with seekers is that they're not seeking Jesus. Because the natural sinner does not seek after the gospel. This is very important. Well, they're seeking Jesus. No, they're not. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. What saves man? The power of God. The power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. What are they to him? They're foolishness to him. Nor can he even know them. In other words, he's not able. It's impossible to know him. So this group was seeking bread. They were seeking another miracle that they could observe, that they could partake of, that they could, here it is, talk about. You know, a lot of Christians who profess Christ, especially like in Southern California, they, they church hop. They just jump here to there to there to there to there to there. They want to get all stirred up. They go to this guy who's a great order here. This group because I dig their music and you know it's so cool. They never get settled down. There's no accountability. There's no growth. They just continually they're seeking. Jesus said, "You seek me not because of the signs." but because you ate of the loaves and were up. You were what? You were filled. You were filled. Now here's what Jesus is saying. You didn't come because you understood the signs I performed as the scriptures predicted. You didn't come because you want to follow me as Lord. You came because you want to exploit me. All you want is more free meals. You see? See, the miracle of multiplying food filled their stomachs. And they loved it. Notice Jesus says, you ate and you were filled. This word filled is a Greek, Greek word which means grass or straw. It's like fodder. As an animal would fill itself with grass or hay. Okay? This is something you feed domestic animals like cattle, sheep, Horses. 
So Jesus is saying, in essence here, you know, you ate like a bunch of barnyard animals and you're back for another load. That's the only reason you're here. You know, Aaron, um, who, who read from Isaiah this morning, he grew up on a farm. And the other day, he had no idea I was going to talk about this, but he was talking about fodder. He was over at the house and he was talking about when they would have a bad season, a slim hay crop, um, and the feed wasn't good, they would take straw and they would mix it with real hay in order to make the cattle think that their stomachs were filled. Now indeed they were filled, but it wasn't filled with nutrition. It was part nutrition, part fodder. It would just fill them up. And they would walk away, digest it, come back for more. Walk away, chew on the cud a while, come back for a little more. They're all foddered up. They weren't filled with the right food. These people weren't filled with the bread of life. They were foddered up like a bunch of barnyard animals coming back for more. And Jesus hits them right where they live, man. No messing around. Aaron also told me, <laughs> one of the things you don't do is you don't feed young cattle um, straw um, hay that hasn't been dried out. If it's green and, and they eat it early and they, they mack out on it, it causes gas within them and they bloat and there's no way for it to escape. And he said one morning they walked they woke up and they looked out and two, two of their calves were laying with all fours up like this. They were bloated and dead. <laughs> People think they're saved and they're on their way to hell. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing when you tell an animal story how much awe there is, right? Cat got over by a car this morning. Oh. I have an uncle who's on his way to hell. He thinks he's saved. Oh, that's too bad. Christians who think they're Christians, they're not Christians, false disciples, they want to get all they can from Christ, they're stuffed to the gills and they keep coming back for more. They keep coming back. They keep going from church to church, as I said, to, to, to find something that fits their little fancy because they can't handle truth. Why? Because they're not of the truth. This mob was not of the truth. This reminds me of the words of Isaiah to the children of Israel. We read from it this morning. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. The ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. A farm animal can find their way instinctively to the feeding manger. But God's own people do not consider. Consider what? Him. His grace gift. The power, the person of God. They simply take, take, take. This is a striving after God, alright. But this is a striving that's superficial. It's artificial and it's without self-denial. Jesus talked about a striving. He talked about a striving back in Luke chapter 13. Look what Jesus said. He's going about, he's doing the work of his ministry. Chapter 13, verse 22, And when he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, one of them said, one of his followers said, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will what? Seek 
to enter, and they will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? And then you will begin to say, well, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. They thought they knew him. They were convinced. But you know what never was never established here? What was never established was a, a, a relationship. They had a religion. Now, make note, it's very important to know, strive does not mean you strive to to earn salvation. Salvation is a gift, period. It's a grace gift. The striving here is a a struggle against conflict. Because there's a cost of human pride. There must be a conflict against human pride that that puffs itself up against God. It must be crucified. You know, in Jesus' ministry... As we're seeing here, as we will see in John 6, as you read through the rest of the Gospels, committed followers of Christ were becoming more and more scarce the closer he got to Jerusalem, Calvary, and the cross. And the closer he got to that destiny, the more difficult his teaching became. Oh, this is just too much, I can't handle this, I'm out of here. Okay, let's go where we can get three points sermon in a, in, a, in a poem. A couple videos. We can feel good, right? Same thing. It's the same thing. Human nature has not changed. Christ's messages, if you haven't noticed, often seemed designed to discourage the half-hearted. You know, even as true believers, brothers and sisters, for those of you in Christ, if we're not cautious and aware of our own sinful weaknesses, of which we all have, amen? We all have our weaknesses. I know what mine are. Do you know what yours are? It's important that we know. If we're not careful, we can also become, though we're saved, half-hearted seekers of the person in the face of Jesus Christ. May we be very cautious. Because what will happen if we're half-hearted as soon as our expectations of some Bible study or some fellowship, or some worship, whatever it is, if, as soon as they're not met, we're just so discouraged. And then we're off trying to find this new thing rather than a deepening relationship with the truth. The Word, Jesus Christ. We begin to lose interest. Your acquired tastes aren't being satisfied. So that's all false disciples seek. True disciple, on the other hand, gives all that he has for the glory of God. False disciples want to take, take, take. True disciples want to give. They want to give. Anything less than that is to labor for that which spoils, for that which has no lasting effect. Verse 27, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will what? will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. See, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to grace eternal life and righteousness into the world for all those who will believe. Because, verse 27, 
God the Father has set his seal on him. In other words, he is set apart and given him authority to perform the high office of imparting to all that will believe the ever-sustaining bread of life. That seal has been set on the Son from the Father. Now, to digest that kind of food, which is everlasting, salvation must be the only motive of the quote-unquote seeker. You know, the only people that can truly seek God are those who've been sought and found by Him. And if someone is seeking this type of food, I mean, they're hungry for it, it means that God is already operating in their life. He's drawing them, compelling them. And they're responding and eventually will come to faith. So, everlasting life must be to us a deeper concern than some outward existence of the body and that's what Jesus is talking about here. <clears throat> when someone has this kind of sincerity in coming to Christ, it reveals for us the, the reality of verse 37. Take a look at it. Chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will what? They will come. It's a guarantee. They will come to me. And when they come, I will not cast them out. Why? Because it's a gift of the Father to the Son. Determined before the foundation of the earth. Paid for on the cross. Here we have the doctrine of provenient grace. Pre-venient grace. Provenient grace. We'll get into, more, into it a little deeper here in the weeks to come. But what, what provenient grace means is this. That before someone can seek after God, God must have first, as I said, sought them out, found them, convicted them, drew them, and regenerated them. In other words, to be born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. The only kind of Christian there is, brothers and sisters, friends and family, is a born-again Christian. There's no such thing as any other type of Christian. So if people say to you, oh, you're a born-again Christian. Well, I'm a Christian, but not born again. Well, then you're not a Christian. Said Jesus. Because speaking of man in his natural state, here's what the Bible says. Romans 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even what? Not even one. There is none who understands, and there's no one who seeks God. If they're, quote, seeking God, and it's not in response to the divine work of the one true God, it's simply outward, and all they are trying to do is find relief from a screaming conscience and laden guilt because of their sin nature. That's it. So therefore, provenient grace is a grace that goes before and does its work in men and women, in, in men and women enabling them to believe. So that work precedes all human response. We'll see that in verse 37 as we just quoted, and we'll also see it in verse 44 when we get to it, verse 65 when we get to it. Then we see this seal. Notice he says, Verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. This is God's mark of certification. 
The one who holds this seal acts on God's behalf. Jesus is the seal. It's the seal of the Father on the Son. He holds the seal. In Jesus' day, if a document was sent um, by a monarch, king or whatever, whatnot, he would put wax on it, he would have a signet ring, and he would impress his signet ring, his signature of who he was and his authority upon that seal, and he would give it to a deliverer, and if anyone opened it other than the recipient, what would happen to them? They were the headless horsemen. They would lose their head. They would die. So when a seal, an authenticated seal, was on any document, someone could be illiterate and stand and see the seal and listen to that which is declared and they would know that it's true. The seal indicated ownership. Jesus Christ is God the Father's ambassador to earth, right? Remember the work of Christ in His deity? He stands between God and fallen man as God in the flesh, while at the same time He stands as the mediator or intercessor between fallen man and a holy God as man, perfect man, sinless man. It's divine work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. And all true believers recognize that truth. And they are therefore also, guess what? Sealed. You're in Christ, you're sealed. Guaranteed. You will arrive on time. You will not be lost in the terminal of the airport somewhere. You will arrive. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a what? It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Guaranteed you will arrive in glory. What a glorious hope we have. What a great promise we have in Christ. So, false disciples have been revealed. They've been rebuked by Christ. And now they want to proudly inquire of Him. Arrogance here, really. And here we have observation number three. The ultimate interest and work of man is to believe in Christ. Notice, believe in Christ, not about Christ. Verse 28, And then they said to him, Well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Notice they picked up the word labor and misinterpreted here to mean the work of salvation. Back in verse uh, 27, Jesus said, Do not labor for food which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. But they missed his second point. They completely missed the word give. Which the Son of Man will what? Will give you. You can't earn it. Only He can provide it. He's the very giver of life. The very source, the substance. So steeped in legalistic religion, they thought they had to do something to earn their salvation. And I believe that's true within every unredeemed heart that people actually think that they can do something to find favor in the sight of Holy God Almighty. I know someone in my neighborhood who does so much good, and I know all about it because they're sure to tell me that they do it. Constantly. I'm always hearing about the good works that this person does. Not saved. They do a lot of stuff. 
a lot of philanthropic good, you know, good deeds to man and all these different types of things and, you know, little packages of bread to the neighbors. That stuff's all great. But one day I asked this individual, I said, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Are you certain that you're going to be with Jesus Christ? Tears welled up in her eyes. Her response, I'm trying. I'm trying. I said, well, you can keep on trying because you're never going to meet the standard. The standard is flawless perfection. But there was rejection to that truth. Sad. Self-work always turns into self-worship. Glenn Beck, Headline News, he has his own show. Uh, Anderson Cooper of CNN, great anchor, I think the guy's incredible. He's on Glenn Beck interviewing Glenn Beck because Glenn Beck has a new book out. Glenn Beck said, eight years ago, I couldn't even make $600 plus dollars of, of rent a month. He goes, I was a, a major alcoholic. He goes, my first wife left me. He goes, I met another great woman. I asked her to marry me. And she said, no. And I said, why? And she goes, because we don't have God in our life. He goes, so we went on a church hunt. And we found a church. He goes, I got baptized. And ever since then, I've been living out the Ten Commandments every day. <sighs> Hello. So now when Glenn Beck dies and goes to heaven, he can say, Jesus, move over, because now there's two of us. If you're going to work the works of God like that, then you can say, stand over, move over, Jesus, because we're both, two of us are perfect now. In other words, what? No one can uphold the law. The law is a mirror. And all the law does is reveal to you and to me that we can't do that. It's a reflection of what, what we're not. Jesus Christ came and upheld that law perfectly as the God-man. The work of God is to accept Jesus Christ and that which He has done on your behalf if you're a believer. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him in whom He sent. When a person believes on Christ, he's not performing a good work that earns him salvation. Amen? Faith, look, faith to believe... You don't get saved because you have faith to believe. You get saved because God has graced you to believe, you see? It's very important to understand this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that, that what? That faith is not of yourselves, it is a what? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. There's no boasting in salvation. So therefore, all of salvation is of who? It's of God. Even the faith that you have has been granted by God. Well, what about free will? You don't have free will. Until you're saved. Until God graces you to believe, then your will has been set free. Until then, it is subject to your nature, which is sin-laden nature. When He frees it, you are now free to willfully submit to the authority of the one who saved you, you see. That's grace. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You can walk in them. You're commanded to walk in them because you're enabled to walk in them by His grace, person, His presence, His power because He did it on your behalf. That's what we rejoice in. So the Scripture everywhere declare that to be saved, or i.e. to do the works of God, we must believe on the Son of God. Not merely about God and His Son, but in Christ, on Christ. It's a transfer of trust because guess what? He did the work. He upheld the law. He went to the cross. And if you're in Christ, you know that all of your sin was laid upon Him. And then all of His righteousness is placed upon your account. That's the work. It's His work. That's the gospel. And then someone who professes to have faith will have works that support the faith. It's a product of the faith. You don't put works before faith. You don't earn that. Works are a product of that which has been worked into you. And then we're called to work out what he's worked in, which is salvation. James 2.26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is what? Dead also. You can say all day, I know Jesus. But if there's no fruit of the Spirit in a life of works that reflect the work of Christ that He's done on your behalf, you might want to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, you see. Because James 2.19 says, even the demons, what do they do? They believe, and you know what they do? They tremble. Demons believe. As a matter of fact, Satan and his demons' theology is flawless. It's perfect. They know it, inside and out. They're not subject to it. They rebelled against it. And the lake of fire was created for Satan and his followers. So both Jesus and Paul declare that faith alone, by God's grace, saves the soul. James explains the kind of faith that gives evidence that the individual is saved. It's works that reveal the fact that God has worked in you salvation. You're not working for salvation. You're working from it. From it. So believer, words to you this morning to encourage you. You've been graced to believe in Him who's our only hope, our only righteousness, all the righteousness you have, which is perfect because it's positional. It's in Christ. So you stand perfectly righteous in Christ. All of that is the righteousness of Christ that He worked for in perfect obedience to the Father which has been laid upon your account. That's all the righteousness you have and that righteousness is everlasting, eternal, perfect in the sight of God. That's why you're accepted in His sight. It's called imputed righteousness. Because all of your sin was imputed to Him. It was laid upon Him on the cross as though He committed every sin that you've ever committed or I've ever committed. So his perfection is the foundation of acceptance and the inheritance of eternal life. So the work of God, which he's talking about, is to believe, to believe in, to believe on. Again, he's the vine, we're the branch. This is belief, you're in the vine. All the life that's in the vine comes into the branch. And what comes off on the branch? Grapes, fruit. Fruit that there's life there, you see. This mob didn't want that. 
Secondly, for the believer, the Lord has said to believe in me and the very faith that attaches you to me for justification also attaches you to me just in the way that a branch relies on life from the vine. May we live in such a manner, amen? May we seek Him with all diligence because He's already sought us out and He's found us and we are therefore in Him. So now we can seek Him. You can be a true God seeker. If you're not in Christ, you can think you're seeking God, but you're not. And I'll tell you what, if you're here today and you're desiring and you're hungering and you're wanting this, it's because He's working in your life. He's the one that got you here by divine appointment. Now, on the human side of things, I urge you, I bid you, as Paul urged and begged people to respond to the gospel, I beg of you to respond to the gospel. Repent and believe. Because see, I'll tell you what, if you're not in Christ, to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless, spotless, without blemish. Can anyone get to heaven without perfect works? Anyone? Answer? No. You cannot get to heaven without perfect works. It's impossible. Is any human being able in and of themselves to stand before God with perfect works? Answer? No, absolutely not. So the only hope is Jesus Christ, the one who's done the work. And you get His works placed on your account. You may ask now, but you don't know about my sin. You don't know about my past. You don't know about what I've done, the way I live today. You know what? I don't need to know. God knows. So I'll say to you this. Come now with me and let's reason together from the living Word of God. As Isaiah the prophet said, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. Okay, it's a guarantee. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, such was the case for Israel. Those who were willing ate of the land. Those who refused and rebelled, they were devoured. They were judged. The principle remains the same. If you're not in Christ today, you know who you are. If you're not in Christ today, and up until this day you thought you were in Christ, and the truth of the living Word of God has revealed otherwise today, let's reason together. Let the Word of God examine your heart. Call upon Christ. Turn from your sin. This is repentance. To turn away from sin, to have a change of mind, to turn away from sin and turn to Christ. It's a transfer of trust. Everything you trust yourself with, you must now surrender that to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit takes residence, takes over your life. And then you, in response, now have a, a life that wants to abide in Him. And out of that comes an assurance. An assurance of the seal, Jesus Christ. God bless you. You must take of the bread of life and eat, devour, feed on, feed off the rest of your life. It's the only hope you have. Or you will die in your sin. You will pay the penalty 
which is eternal separation from God. You will face God forever, but it won't be His mercy, it will be His wrath. And if you're in Christ, you know you've been delivered from that. That's why we join here and rejoice. Amen? The gospel goes out because I know that there's people who think they're saved and they're not. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. It's a gift. This is a gift. Because God the Father has set His seal on Him. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. He's all there is. Call on Him today if you don't know Him. If you're in Him, rejoice in Him with thanksgiving that you've been granted the bread of life. And every day will be thanksgiving for you. Amen? Mighty God, sovereign ruler of the universe, we praise You. We thank You. We know that nothing is outside of Your control. Nothing. Salvation is all of You. Grace is totally of you. I pray for your people here today, those who are in Christ. Lord, may we forever rejoice in the gracious love offering and gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And may our seeking be a seeking that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that desires to be pure in heart. God, do that work in us, we ask for your sanctifying work to be made manifest in and through our lives. And for those, Lord, anyone here today who does not know you, perhaps they think they do, I pray that there'll be a deep conviction upon their soul. You'd invade their very life, that they would not rest in any type of comfort until there's a repentance to your divine work in and through their lives. And may they settle down and rest in the eternal security that you provide through your Son, Jesus Christ knowing that they're sealed, the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would do that divine work today in anyone here that's unregenerate, and that they would rejoice and proclaim your divine work in and through their lives in the hours, perhaps days to come. We thank you and we praise you for this time, and I thank you for this church, this body, and all that you're doing on our behalf, and all that you've graced us with today. We pray and thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.